Mr. Bile, is it? Uh, my friends call me Phlegm. Uh-huh. Mr. Bile, can you tell me what you did wrong? I fell down? No, no, before that. Can anyone tell me Mr. Bile's big mistake? Anyone? <coughs> Ugh. Let's take a look at the tape. Here we go. Uh, right. Ah, there. See? The door. You left it wide open. And leaving the door open is the worst mistake any employee can make because... Um, it could let in a draft? It could let in a child. Oh, Mr. Waternews. There's nothing more toxic or deadly than a human child. A single touch could kill you. Leave a door open and a child could walk right into this factory, right into the monster world. I won't go in a kid's room. You can't make me. You're going in there because we need this. Our city is counting on you to collect those children's screams. Without Scream, we have no power. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hope. Throughout this month of January, we've been working our way through the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, we've seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We've seen some miracles and signs and wonders. We've seen this rapid and widespread growth of the church as more and more people all the time embrace uh, the good news of God's love and God's grace through Jesus Christ. But of course, there's some resistance to all of this as well. And we get into some of that in Acts chapter 18, our Bible reading for today. Uh, Paul faces opposition, and the opposition is more than just sort of philosophical, intellectual disagreement with Paul's ideas about life. It says that he is insulted, and as you read further into Acts chapter 18, you'll start to see the insults turn into violence at some point. And so in the face of this kind of opposition and persecution, Paul decides he's going to change his approach. Going to have to have a, a little bit of a different strategy. He's in the city of Corinth, and his strategy at this point has been, let's go to these places where there's a Jewish community, where there's a synagogue, where there are already people who know and understand about the coming, the promise of the Messiah, and then he'll use the Hebrew scriptures to try to prove to them why he believes Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Son of God. But it's largely the Jews in Corinth who are insulting and uh, opposing Paul, so his new strategy is we'll go to the Gentiles, people who are considered outside the family of faith uh, in, in that uh, time and in that place. And so God is actually thumbs up to this new plan that Paul has. Let's read what God says to Paul, Acts chapter 18, verse 9. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent. It's an interesting time to be a Christian. Interesting time to be a, a follower of Jesus. There are fewer and fewer people all the time who have interest in going to church on a regular basis. More and more people all the time think that faith or religious belief, it's kind of a taboo topic. It's not something we should ever really talk about in public. It's a very private kind of deal. Just kind of keep it to yourself. Uh, America has always been a melting pot culture, but that melting pot is just kind of different varieties of uh, Christianity is what it's typically been. Now more and more all the time, it's a pluralistic society all kinds of different uh, beliefs and uh, religious beliefs as well. Uh, some people have said, America, we've entered the post-Christian era in American history. 
What does it mean? What does it look like to be the church? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in these changing sort of cultural religious times? Well, this verse gives us, I think, a pretty big clue. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. There's something about this verse I think is powerfully insightful. A big part of the reason for the decline of the church in America is wrapped up in this verse. And at the same time, our strategy for moving forward and being the church in this culture that we find ourselves in, we see that in this verse as well. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. I love the, I don't know, creative concept behind Monsters, Inc., did you hear what Mr. Waternew said, the very last thing he said in that clip that we just watched? Without Scream, we have no power, he says. Without Scream, we have no power. So Monsters, Inc. collects the screams of scared, frightened children, and they use those screams as the power that fuels the city of Monstropolis. So it is quite literally a culture of fear. And for far too long, the church has operated along a similar kind of assumption, that the church has said, without scream, we have no power. We, the church, we scare because we care. And there's these communities, these Christian communities, these churches that are kind of motivated by fear. And that's what drives them out into the world to talk about this faith that they believe in. It's motivated by fear. And if a church is motivated by fear, what does it look like? Well, maybe it looks like, I don't know, hey, don't lie. You know where liars go. You, you better believe in Jesus or else. You better be obedient or else. And it can start to look like that image we had on the screen a little while ago, maybe a street uh, preacher on, on a corner with a bullhorn and a sign that says, turn or burn, repent or perish. And it's all coming out of this place of great fear. Now, most of the time, I, I think actually a lot of churches operate from a fear-based mentality, but it's hardly ever as obvious as a street preacher with a bullhorn. It's much more subtle. And it Maybe it comes out as people like me, pastors, leaders in the church who have this scarcity mindset, kind of living and leading from this place where the fear is there's just not enough, whether it's not enough money or not enough volunteers or not enough time or just fill in the blank, not enough. And, and when the church, when the leadership of the church is leading out of fear, the congregation can pick up on it in a hurry. It starts to feel kind of gross. I mean, I, the story Pastor Mike has told repeatedly, how hope got started. He went around knocking on doors, going house to house, knocking on doors. Do you go to church? If yes, great, that's awesome. If no, why not? Why don't you go to church? And the number one response he would get from people is, all church cares about is money. Where, where would they get an idea like that? From their experience at a church where it's just like, you need to give more, you need to give more, you need to give more. And, it, and, and sometimes churches will say, we'll kind of help you out. We'll mail you a letter that will inform you how much we think you should be giving. And there's all kinds of reasons why churches might do that. But the negative reason, an unhealthy reason for doing that would be fear, a scarcity mindset, fear that there's not going to be enough. Now, go back to Acts chapter 18 and what God says to Paul, the order of what God says to Paul is really important here. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. The order is really important. In, in far too many churches, we mess up the order. Because we're scared, we, we, we look at the world around us and it's like, I don't like the direction. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't like this. I'm scared of the future. I'm scared of where we're going. And out of that fear, I'm going to speak out. Out of that fear, I'm not going to be silent. 
put it in the context of the mission of Lutheran Church of Hope. I'm scared, so I'm going to reach out to the world around me and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. How's that going to work? And if you kind of follow it out to sort of the extreme conclusion of where it's going to take us if churches are constantly primarily motivated by fear, it starts to look like The Handmaid's Tale. It's a book that I had to read for one of my classes in college. It's a TV show now. It's like this dystopian cultural reality that's joyless and lifeless. It's kind of absurd, actually. They, they say we're trying to be this biblically-based society, but it is, it is a perverse charade of Christianity. You cannot be the church. You cannot be the church and primarily be motivated by fear. Cannot be the church and primarily be motivated by fear because fear blocks love. Fear blocks love. And so a good question to be asking ourselves on a pretty regular basis, am I acting out of fear or am I acting out of love? Different circumstances, situations, relational realities we find ourselves in, am I acting out of fear or am I acting out of love? And if we would actually do this, start asking ourselves this question on a regular basis and being as honest as we possibly can, I think we would be surprised how often we find ourselves actually acting out of fear and we might be a little bit disturbed at how many times we think we're acting out of love when in reality we're acting out of fear. So let me give you an example how this plays out in my life. My wife Wendy and I, we love uh, Thai food, and so every once in a while we'll have a little lunch date to get some Thai food. We did that this week on Thursday. And Thursday in the regular rhythm of my week is sermon writing day. So when we met for lunch, I'm halfway through the process of writing this sermon. Am I acting out of fear? Am I acting out of love? We sit down, take a look at the menu. I decide to order the Penang curry, which is slow cooked in coconut milk with green beans and bell peppers and kefir leaves and your choice of meat and spices and oh, aren't you getting hungry? And so we got some appetizers first, some uh, soup and uh, some pot stickers. It was fantastic. Now the waitress brings the meal to me and I'm mixing in the curry with the rice and I notice that something doesn't look right. And upon further investigation, I discover the green beans are not actually green beans. They are asparagus spears that they've cut up to look like green beans. Now, I know some people like asparagus. I am not some people. I, I, I do not like, there are certain vegetables. I have a fear of these vegetables. It's more than a distaste. I have a literal fear of, I don't know, broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus. It's a long story. Just trust me. It, it brings fear into my life. So, I realize I have a choice to make as I look at this plate that has asparagus in it. Am I going to act out of fear or am I going to act out of love? And so I'll just fill you in on a little bit of the growth and maturing work that I've, your pastor, have been doing <laughs> for the last couple of years. So for most of my life, here's how I would have responded. I would have just slowly shut down. I wouldn't have said anything, and I just would have started to sulk and pout a little bit, and I probably would have made a big deal about moving the asparagus to the side, and I would have ate the dang meal, but I wouldn't have been happy about it, and the whole time I'd have found myself getting angrier and angry, and angry at the cook because they put asparagus in my meal, angry at the waitress for not noticing, angry at myself for not saying anything, and then this lunch date that my wife would have been looking forward to is all of a sudden disconnected and cold and like, what's going on, and what did I say to make Scott mad at me? That's not what I did on Thursday. On Thursday, I said to the waitress, ah, menu said it's green beans, I think this is asparagus. Uh, she was very apologetic. And I very convincingly said, no big deal. 
I mean, we can, I'll just order something different. It would be silly to get worked up about something that can be solved so easily. And so got something different. It came back. We enjoyed our meal, enjoyed our conversation, gave ourselves a little high five for the growth and maturity that I displayed. <laughs> and then it was time, because you got to celebrate, you know, these milestones in life. And then it was time to pay the bill and get back to work on this sermon. And so I'm waiting to pay the bill. And I'm waiting to pay the bill, and I'm checking my watch, and I'm waiting to pay the bill, and the waitress is nowhere to be found. And immediately I find myself like nervousness, anxiety, the whole world just kind of crushing in on me, and I find myself getting very angry at this waitress. Where is she? Doesn't she know it's Thursday? Doesn't she know it's sermon writing day? I got to get back. The longer I wait here to pay my bill, the less time I'm going to have to write a sermon. What if I don't have enough time to write a sermon? What if the sermon ends up being horrible because I didn't have enough time for it, and people come to church and leave saying, that was a horrible sermon. I'm not going back to that church anymore, and we have to close the doors of the church and fire all the staff. It's the end of the world as we know it. I don't feel fine. <laughs> Why do I tell you that story? So you can leave here feeling very good about yourselves. I'm not as messed up as Pastor Scott. Huh? Now, I tell you the story because I think that situation plays out in your lives in different kinds of ways. Everybody has that sort of something in there. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is that kind of hijacks your emotions and gets you all dysregulated, but I think everybody has something. And maybe you know it, and maybe you're completely unaware of it. Uh, weekly email we send out, it's called the Hope E-News every Friday. It goes out if you, want, if you get it, uh, great. If you don't get it and would like to, go to the website in the bottom right-hand corner. You can sign up for the Hope E-News and kind of a preview of the weekend that's coming up and some highlights of things that are going on in the life of the church. Um, this week I wrote about Wednesday morning after uh, the snow and it was a snow day and my wife Wendy and I, we were out shoveling our driveway and the part of shoveling the driveway I dislike the most is right at the end of the driveway where it meets the street and the wonderful human beings who keep our streets nice and clean and safe for us, they can't help it, but they just pile all of the street snow right there at the end of my driveway and it piles up like this, I don't know, meteorite or something. It's hard and frozen and ice and snow and gross and dirty and you got to dig through that. It's just next to impossible. So we got most of it done and I said to Wendy, I think that's good enough. I'll just take the car and drive over the rest of it and that'll squash it down and we'll be good to go and our backs will be saved. You know, she looked at me like, what are you talking about? We're not going to do that. And then she started preaching at me. That's the way most people live their lives, Scott. They take their worries and their fears and their problems and they just squash it down, squash it down, stuff it away, squash it down, drive over it, back over it, and they think, took care of that problem, and it just creates a bigger problem. I was like, okay, we'll shovel the driveway. <laughs> Goodness. I've, I've talked to you before about this, but it's been a while, so uh, just remind you, counseling is a big part of the spiritual formation of my life, going to see a, a counselor. For the last five or six years, I've been doing it on a pretty regular basis. And I think really what the counseling process is for me is how do you dig into that pile of stuff, you know, in the corners of your heart that gets hard and iced over over time? How do you dig into it? Because there's something a little scary about it. What monsters are we going to find uncovered if we uh, dig in this too far? So one of the things I've learned through the counseling process is curiosity is the antidote to fear. 
Curiosity is the antidote to fear. When, when you find yourselves in those situations when you're kind of responding emotionally out of proportion to whatever it is that's going on in your life, just start, learn to get curious about that. Ha! I wonder why I'm so mad at that waitress. I probably shouldn't be this mad at her. What's going on? Just start asking questions. Where did that, what was said? What happened? Where did this come from? And if there's someone in your life that you can talk to about it, chances are because it's not scary to them, they can actually see it a lot better than you and just kind of talk with them about it, but be curious about it. Where does this come from? Because what you start to discover is that that makes whatever your fear is a little less powerful causes it to lose some power in your life if you just get curious about it. And then you can do the real hard work of creating new ways, better ways of thinking and believing and relating. I think this is something we all have in common. Doesn't matter if you're a church person or not, Jesus person or not, Bible person or not. It's very easy for us as human beings to slip into this scarcity mindset where we have this fear, fear of not having enough money, not having enough respect, not having enough friends, not having enough love or attention or success or whatever it might be. And, and our fear of not having enough, it starts to play out as like, what if somebody, these are things that I need, what if somebody takes what I need or refuses to give me what I need? And it gets to be this real scary thing and you start to see how quickly and powerfully our fear can block love. The monsters in Monsters, Inc., scared to death of human children. They're toxic. Whatever you do, stay away from kids. Don't touch a kid. And so the training that they do, the simulation exercises, they're training monsters to go into kids' bedrooms and scare them to death. Make sure you close the door. Got to keep the door closed so kids don't get into Monsters, Inc. Well, later on in the movie, someone accidentally leaves the door open, and a little girl makes her way into Monsters, Inc., and Sully and Mike have to figure out how do we get her back through the door into her bedroom. They're trying to figure out how to do it. They're getting chased, and they end up hiding her in their apartment for a little while. And as you watch this scene, I want you to just watch for the ways in which fear blocks love. Take a look. are to be believed there has been a child security breach for the first time in monster history we can neither confirm nor deny the presence of a human child here tonight well a kid flew right over me and blasted a car with its laser vision i tried to run from it but it picked me up with its mind powers and shook me like a doll it's true i saw the whole thing it is my professional opinion that now is the time to panic
or we'll be in trouble because they're going to find us. So please stop crying right now. Good, right now. good, Zoe. Ooh, Keep it up. You're doing great. Happy bear. He has no fear. Ah! Ah! Don't you me and touch me. Zoe the bear. The bear. Give it to me. So hopefully you picked up on a little of foreshadowing there. Uh, when the child is screaming out of fear, that creates some power. But when she's screaming out of laughter, at the end of that, it's enough power to light up the whole neighborhood. It's the direction that the movie is moving. There's something more powerful than fear. Do you ever wonder why it's so difficult for us as human beings? It's like easy for us to focus in on fear and worry and everything that's going bad and negative kind of stuff. Why is it so difficult for us to focus on the good, to pay attention to, I don't know, things like joy? Where does this come from? I'll introduce you to another monster. Uh, this is Tom Brady. He's not a monster, but anyway, uh, quarterback for the New England Patriots. A lot of people consider him the greatest quarterback of all time. Played in eight straight AFC championship games. Last week against my favorite team, the Kansas City Chiefs. And the reason he's going to his record ninth Super Bowl is because we lined up offsides when we intercepted the... Anyway, I'm not bitter. Uh, before the game, in, in the week leading up to the game against the Chiefs, he was saying stuff like this. I know everyone thinks we suck and, you know, we can't win any games. So we'll see. We'll see. It'll be fun. And after the game, it was like taking anything that someone might say as a slight, as a negative, and he was just latching onto it. After the game, you can hear him celebrating with one of his teammates, and he's saying, you're too slow, I'm too old, we got no defense, we got no playmakers, we got nothing. All week long, focused on the negative, focused on the negative, focused on... He's like building this chip that he's going to have on his shoulder that's be like, you don't think we're good enough? You don't think we're going to win? I'll show you. Well, pretty much everyone thought they were going to win. But anyway, he, he's playing with the underdog card and using whatever sort of fear or slight as motivation to help him win. And a lot of people say one of the big reasons he's had such a successful career is he's done this. He was a sixth-round draft choice. That means every team in the NFL passed on him multiple times, saying, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And so kind of the underlying fear is, what if they're right? What if I don't have what it takes? What if I'm not good enough? And that fear becomes the drive, the motivator behind much of his success. Turns out fear can be a real good motivator for someone trying to win a sporting event. But dig a little deeper. Why is that? I talked about this a couple of years ago, but I think it's such an interesting idea. It'd be good to bring up every once in a while just to remind ourselves of the way our brains work. The really smart people, neuroscientists who study the brain, and they look at this little piece of the brain that's called the amygdala, which is responsible, they tell us, for things like emotions and survival instincts and, and memory. And as they study brain function and, and as our brains fire in different situations in our, our life, what they've discovered is two-thirds of the neurons in our amygdala are used for the detection of negative experiences or, or experiences that we might describe as a threat. Two-thirds of the neurons used to detect a threat. And there's something really kind of beautiful about this if you think. Like, if, if human beings are going to survive, wouldn't it be a good thing for us to quickly be able to detect 
threats to our survival. And maybe we could even feel something that doesn't feel good, like, I don't know, fear when we're faced with a threat, and that the, the brain would quickly put that into our long-term memory so that when we encounter situations like this, again, we can develop strategies for avoiding things that are threats to our survival. So what they discover is the amygdala does this. Immediately, as soon as there's something bad that happens or a threat, it transfers all of that into long-term memory just immediately. The rest of the neurons that are used to detect positive experiences, good things that happen in our lives, things for which we might want to show some gratitude, it's not quick. They find we have to hold that good experience in our awareness, in our conscience, for up to 12 seconds before it gets transferred by the amygdala into long-term memory fascinating stuff. And here's the way really smart people kind of summarize it for people like me who are like, I don't quite follow. So this is Rick Hansen, a PhD in clinical psychology, author of a book called Hardwiring Happiness. The brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Just the way our brains work. The brain is like Velcro for negative experiences. Immediately transfer that into long-term memory. Teflon for positive ones just kind of slides off. And a big part of it has to do with we're trying to survive here. How does it play out in our lives? You get a compliment or five or ten or a dozen or who knows how many, and you get one compliment. What do you spend all of your brain power thinking about? Uh, one criticism. You spend all your time thinking about the criticism. And so I, I think as I was thinking about this, what, what I think the real point is Tom Brady's a scaredy cat. And he viewed the chiefs as this huge threat, you know. No. What does this mean for you and for me? I mean, it's possible that fear can be this good motivator for an athlete, but is fear a good motivator for a husband and wife trying to figure out how to make marriage work? Is fear a good motivator for parents and kids as they're trying to create healthy relational dynamics? Is fear a good motivator for a church that's trying to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. Some people might say, yeah, it is, actually, it's biblical. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I would suggest the key word there is beginning. That the longer you follow after Jesus, the more your heart gets in tune with the heart of God, the more the Holy Spirit is empowering you and filling you and giving you the fruit of the Spirit, the less time you're going to spend on things that are fearful and worrisome and the more time you're going to spend on, I don't know, things that give you joy, gratitude for God's love and God's grace. Here's how uh, Paul writes about it to the Philippian church. Philippians 4.8, it's on the screen, read this out loud with me. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Paul writes this just a couple of verses after he says, boy, sure seems like you guys worry a lot. You worry, you worry, you worry, you're so anxious. Pray about those things, but rejoice more. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes, which is very difficult for us to do. He understood brain science way back then, how, how difficult it is for us to keep our focus on positive things, how easy it is for us to focus on negative things. So he says, we got to be intentional about this. Fix your thoughts, he says. Think about these kinds of things. It requires effort. It requires intentionality. you got some 
work that you're going to have to do. The word he uses is logizomai, a Greek word that means to consider, uh, to weigh, to meditate on. What does this actually mean? And, and one of the nuances of the, the word that uh, you, they say you have to understand this as you're trying to figure out what does it mean to logizomai, it's dealing with what is real. So you're spending all this time worrying, don't do that so much, instead logizomai, instead deal with what is real. What, what's Paul trying to say there? Like our fears and our worries aren't real? No, of course they are. But I heard somebody say recently, one of their big regrets in life is how much time they spent worried about things that never ended up happening. (laughs) We do that a lot, don't we? How much time we spend in fear, in worry, about things that never actually happen. Our oldest, Dalton, was born in August of 1999. We were living in Portland, Oregon. I was going to seminary. Do you remember what the big fear, the big worry was in the fall of 1999 leading up to the year 2000? Y2K. What is going to happen when we get to the year 2000? All the computers aren't going to know what to do with the time and they're just going to stop working and this is going to be catastrophic. Like, you know, hospitals won't work anymore and, I don't know, planes are just going to fall out of the sky and cars won't work because none of the computers work anymore. And so people spent all fall preparing for that eventuality, building bunkers, storing water and gasoline and canned goods for the end of the world is coming with Y2K. And we made plans. We were in Oregon. We said, we're flying home for Christmas this year. We're going to be in Iowa for Christmas and New Year's because we don't want to be stranded 2,000 miles away from our families with a four-month-old when the world starts going into this chaotic mess. And so everybody was watching, like, we're getting closer to the new year, getting closer to the new year. What's going to happen? What's going to... Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happened. And maybe IT people had a lot of work to do that fall. I don't know. It didn't impact my life one bit. How much... And again, okay, there's a balance here. I understand there's a healthy tension we got to have here. Uh, it reminds me of the joke, uh, what did the hypochondriac put on their tombstone? What did the hypochondriac put on their tombstone? I told you I was sick, yeah. (laughs) Of course, that's a funny one, you guys, right? (laughs) Of course there are things that we should worry about. Of course there are things that are scary. And wisdom is make plans to deal with that sort of stuff. I'm just trying to point out how much time do you and I spend in our lives worried about and scared of things that do not actually happen. And so the growing wisdom of Scripture is... Fix your thoughts on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So the assignment for the week is the fix your thoughts challenge. I want us to actually do this. If it takes 12 seconds to get these good uh, experiences transferred into long-term memory, let's take the time to do that. Write down at the end of the day, here are the good things that happened. Start a gratitude journal if, if that's helpful to you. Uh, get together with your spouse and talk about it at some point throughout the day. Where are we seeing evidence of the goodness of God at work in our lives? Or with your entire family, or if you're part of a group, a lot of people are uh, parts of groups that meet throughout the week here as, as part of Lutheran Church of Hope. Something you can do in your group. Where are we seeing the evidence of God's grace and God's goodness at work in our life? Take the time to do it. Be intentional about actually doing that. Well, remember what God says to Paul back in Acts 18. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be afraid. Speak out. What if we could become fearless as a church? And we could carry out our mission. We could speak out 
not because we're motivated by fear, but because we're fueled by joy, pointing the world around us to all that is good, that is right, uh, what our God is up to that is awesome, and can you believe it, and this life that we have to live. What, what a different kind of message that might become. The surprising and joy-filled conclusion of Monsters, Inc. is there's something more powerful than fear. Take a look at this clip, and then we'll sing a song together. I'm telling you, pal, when that wall went up, you should have seen a look on Waternoose's face. <laughs> I hope we get a copy of that tape. Are you all right? Come on, pal, cheer up. We did it. We got Boo home. Uh, sure, we put the factory in the toilet, and gee, hundreds of people will be out of work now. Not to mention the angry mob that'll come after us when there's no more power, but hey, at least we had some laughs, right? I was the ball, but I was the ball. See? All right. first kid of the day. Not bad, huh? You know, only somebody with perfect comedic timing could produce this much energy in one shot. Uh-huh. And the fact that laughter is ten times more powerful than scream had nothing to do with it. 